Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This week, episode 10, is about a Polish nobleman who became perhaps the greatest general of his day, was named King of His People, and is considered one of the saviors of all of Europe. Before we begin, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. I'll wait. Go ahead. Okay, done? Good. If you have any questions from this or any episode, please send them to almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot, or go to the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. As always, maps and images from this and all the episodes can be found on the webpage as well. So, without further ado, this is John Sobieski III, and this is The Almost Forgotten. John, or Jan Sobieski III, was born in 1629 in an area near Lvov, in what is now western Ukraine. It was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, in the section that was actually Poland. His parents were nobles, and while they weren't some of the very minor nobility that was so numerous in the country, there wasn't really any hint that he was destined to someday be the king of Poland. As should be pretty obvious, in the middle of the 17th century, Eastern Europe held a pretty significant country that was made up of two smaller ones, the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Because we're talking about Poland here, of course it was surrounded by enemies, friends, frenemies, and yeah, it had complex international relations. To the north was Sweden, which was becoming the dominant Scandinavian power, and Russia was starting to grow in size and strength to the east. To the west lay the Holy Roman Empire, which covered most of Central Europe, and was in a heated rivalry with France and Louis XIV. The Thirty Years' War finished up, but the Habsburgs were still a major force. This was also the period of the English Civil War and Oliver Cromwell. But the biggest European power was actually the Ottoman Empire, which stretched from the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Aden to the Balkans, Budapest, the northern shores of the Black Sea, and the western side of the Caspian Sea. It had faded somewhat in power, but had recovered by the middle of the century, and was expanding again. Besides North Africa, which was Ottoman territory, the Songhai Empire had collapsed in West Africa, leaving smaller successor states. The Kanem-Bornu Empire was at its peak in Central Africa. In Asia, the Chinese Ming Dynasty was giving way to the Qing Dynasty. The Mughals ruled northern India and were experiencing a time of relative peace and economic growth. This was when the Taj Mahal was built. Burma, Siam, and the Laotian kingdom of Langshang were some of the more powerful kingdoms in Southeast Asia, but European presence was significant. The Dutch and the Dutch East India Company held ports in India and Japan as well as Malacca and Jakarta. The Portuguese held Macau and Goa. The Western Hemisphere was mostly ruled by Spain, where it was much more powerful than in Europe. It held territory from modern Santa Fe, New Mexico, down through Santiago, Chile, and all of the territory, the Spanish Main, in between. France held territory along the St. Lawrence River in Canada, the Dutch had lands on either side of the Hudson River, and the English had colonies stretching from Delaware and Maryland down into the Carolinas, as well as from Connecticut up to Maine. The Iroquois Confederation held upstate New York, while the Plains tribes in the Midwest were still dominant, although there was no real unity amongst the tribes that included the Cheyenne, Dakota, Crow, Blackfoot, Apache, Comanche, and others, mostly unmolested by the Europeans at this point. Back to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was pretty much dominated by the Polish side at this point in terms of leadership, language, and religion. Poland was somewhat different than the other European monarchies at the time, so let's start out with them. It became a Christian kingdom in the Middle Ages around 1000 AD. It fragmented into duchies for a few hundred years, but by the mid-1300s, it was reunited into a single kingdom. 
This was really solidified during the reign of Casimir the Great. His father was the one who had united the kingdom by bringing together two regions known as Greater and Lesser Poland. Casimir scooped up a few more duchies and established the kingdom as a power in Central Eastern Europe that could mediate disputes among other kingdoms. It helped that Rome looked towards it as a reliable Catholic monarchy standing up against the Eastern Orthodoxy and Lithuanian paganism. It had grown economically. According to the Cambridge Histories, quote, There was most activity in Lesser Poland, whose most important town and member of the Hanseatic League, Krakow, became the capital of the kingdom. The region had lead mines, iron, copper, and above all, salt workings. It was the crossroads for routes joining Germany and the West to southern Russia and the Black Sea on the one hand, and the Baltic to Bohemia, Hungary, and the Mediterranean on the other. They were traveled by merchants from Italy and Germany, but also by traders from the East, Armenians, Jews, and Greeks, who often settled in Ruthenia, While it remained for the most part a single united kingdom, dynastic struggles continued for hundreds of years. Casimir died without an heir, but before he did so, he named his nephew as one. His nephew was actually the king of Hungary, who also happened to be descended from the Capetian kings of France, and was given the kingdom under a personal union. After him came the Jagiellonian dynasty, a fairly stable, two-century-long period in Polish history in which the country grew in power, importance, and cultural impact. The Jagiellonians, though, were Lithuanian, in another episode of European fun that brought in outside kings in order to make sure the leader was properly royal or whatever. This brought about a long period of peace and union between Poland and Lithuania. But Poland was stronger, and it did begin to dominate the relationship, despite the royal family's origins. At a time when Europe was seeing a rise in absolutism, Poland saw just the opposite. In addition to these kings, they also had something akin to a modern parliamentary constitutional monarchy, a rarity, if not unique, at the time. It actually began with the succession of Casimir's nephew. In order to convince the nobles to remain loyal during his nephew's succession, he gave concessions to their leaders. Then came 1505, when a constitution established a republic of sorts, sometimes referred to as the nobles' democracy. The same, a council of nobles that grew into a parliament, could in essence veto any decision by the king. Reading directly from the text, quote, Nothing new shall be resolved by us or our successors without the common consent of the senators and the land deputies that shall be prejudicial or onerous to the commonwealth or harmful and injurious to anyone or that would tend to alter the general law and public liberty, unquote. It's a pretty broad-ranging set of things that the parliament had to approve. The commonwealth grew into something even closer to a republic in the late 1500s when Henry of Valois was elected king and had to agree to additional articles before being sworn in. It was a set of more explicit rules for the same. While this was not exactly a democracy as we know it, the nobility made up a significant number of the population, something like 10% in Poland. It would be hard to call this an oligarchy, at least in terms of the time period. And not all nobles were even wealthy. Some worked the lands as the peasants did, some didn't have any land. The Commonwealth was styled as a republic and held some similarities to Venice, or even early America, with some big exceptions. The parliamentarians were nobles. Life for peasants was not good, and there was still a king to lead the state. Turning over towards the Baltic Sea, centuries earlier, Lithuania had united other Baltic tribes in part to resist Teutonic Knights crusading in the region. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania, as it became, grew to encompass the cities of Vilnius and Minsk. Eventually, they took territory from weakening Russia to the east, while defending from the Teutonic Knights coming from the west without expanding in that direction. As the Kievian Rus collapsed, Lithuania took over its lands and for a time held lands from the Baltic to the Black Sea. When the Jagiellonians came to rule Poland, a union was formed and the two countries became allies. But it was a personal union. 
The king of Poland was also the Grand Duke of Lithuania. After the dynasty died out, it was understood that they needed something more official. The Union of Lublin in 1569 officially formed the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, an actual union. When Sigismund II, the last Jagiellonian, died, the nobility elected Henry of Valois. He was the brother of King Charles IX of France. This particular election of the king had high voter turnout, with something like 40,000 nobles voting. Or at least 40,000 nobles standing there and nodding and nobody dissenting. His election began a period with different kings from different dynasties changing over pretty quickly. By the mid-1600s, things had taken a turn for the Commonwealth. Its size alone kept it as a leading power in Europe, but its golden age had passed. Constant warfare would devastate its economy and the country itself. Born into this period, John Sobieski was the son of Jacob Sobieski, a well-known nobleman who was the voivode of Ruthenia and Bells, as well as, at times, Marshal of the Same, and the wealthy Zofia Danilowicz. He had an older brother, Marek, as well as two sisters, Katarzyna and Anna. He also had three more siblings who didn't survive to adulthood. He had a thorough education, going to secondary school in Krakow before attending the Jagiellonian University there. He received a classical education, and by the time he and his brother left in 1646, they also had extensive military educations, and John spoke several languages. That year, the brothers set off on a grand tour of Europe. They traveled through the various German states of the Holy Roman Empire, still ravaged from the Thirty Years' War. Although the Dutch Netherlands was still at war with Spain, who owned Belgium, or the Spanish Netherlands as it was called at the time, they were able to visit Amsterdam, Antwerp, Rotterdam, and Brussels. By the summer of 1646, they reached Paris, and they stayed near the Sorbonne. The brothers had quite a good time in what was perhaps the leading city in Europe. John apparently fathered a son while he was in Paris. They also toured around other cities in France, spent over a year there, and made their way to London as well. But the resumption of the Civil War in England prevented them from going any further, and they had to return to the Netherlands. They were about to continue on, but something at home called them back. The sometimes ally, sometimes enemy Cossacks were asked by the Polish king to help lead a crusade to retake Constantinople from the Turks. If this idea seems foolish to you, the same wasn't impressed either with the plan and vetoed it. The Cossacks weren't exactly happy about losing out on this opportunity for plunder, so they decided to go find some cities to sack. They allied with the Tatars and decided to go after Poland because it probably seemed easier than going after Turkey. Then, the Polish king died, and a bad situation turned into a crisis, known by the name of the Cossack leader, the Kamelnitsky Uprising. Being Polish noblemen pretty much forced the brothers to return and help defend their country, especially after a few Cossack victories in central Ukraine on the western side of the Dnieper River. But these guys would have come back anyway. They were probably stoked for the opportunity to make war and whatnot. The Cossacks and the Tatars advanced into what is now western Ukraine, the region with the major city of Lvov as well as the Sobieski's home. Both brothers fought in battles and distinguished themselves. John was promoted to captain for his bravery and success in battle as a member of the cavalry. The cavalry was the place to be in Poland. Conceptually derived from Hungarian cavalry known as Hazars, the Commonwealth put its own spin on it. They were known as the winged Hazars, heavy cavalry that wore plate armor and were perhaps the best cavalry force in the world at the time. They were called winged hussars because, according to Miltiades Varvunas in his biography of Sobieski, quote, what made them unique was that as they charged, they wore, riveted to the back of their armor, a curious double lyre-shaped metal and leather construction, which seemed to come out of their backs and rise two or three feet higher than their heads. To it was attached, in a beautiful fan-like design, some four dozen large turkey or eagle feathers, unquote. These wings were said to be some sort of defense, but one opponent said the wind whistled through them during a charge and it spooked their horses, 
which caused confusion at the battle line. Whatever the reason for the wings, the cavalry was well suited to fighting the eastern horsemen they so often battled. After some Polish victories, a truce was signed, but, acting like true Europeans, the Ottomans found a way to keep the conflict going. Kamelnitsky accepted Ottoman supremacy in exchange for being named Prince of Ukraine. The Poles kind of thought Ukraine was there, so fighting resumed. In the summer of 1651, something like 200,000 men met outside of a town called Beretsteko for what would be the largest land battle of the 1600s. The Polish king John Casimir found himself in trouble the first day, but he led a counterattack the next day, and soon the Tatars fled the field. The Poles surrounded the Cossacks and killed many of them after a protracted siege-like battle. History remembers a decisive victory for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but it also remembers King John Casimir not pressing his advantage to destroy the fleeing Cossack army. A treaty was signed, but the rebellion wasn't over. The next year, in 1652, Marek Sobieski was present at the Battle of Bateau, in which the Cossacks and the Tatars soundly defeated the Poles. As many as 8,000 were captured, including Marek, and they were eventually executed. Not only did Sobieski lose his brother, Poland lost many of its most experienced soldiers. The war continued, but the Tatars were not wed to the Cossacks. A Polish delegation that included John Sobieski visited the Tatars. They bought their allegiance and it helped them win the next major battle and led to another truce. In 1654, Sobieski made his way to Constantinople as part of another diplomatic mission. While John was in Constantinople, Kmelnitsky allied himself with Russia in a similar fashion to what he had had with Turkey. Again, someone else was essentially saying Ukraine was now under their Cossack vassalage, so again, the Poles were at war. And it wasn't like some sort of de facto war. The Russians actually invaded to help out their new Cossack buddies. After some early Russian victories, a Polish force, which included Zarniecki, a cavalry commander who had basically taught Sobieski everything he knew, won a major victory in central Ukraine. This prevented what appeared to be a complete collapse of the East from coming to pass. At this point, Sobieski had returned from the Ottoman Empire to Poland and was in the capital at Warsaw when he met the love of his life, a French-born noblewoman named Marie Casimir Louis de la Grange d'Arquienne. She was there as a lady-in-waiting to the French-born Polish queen. But their romance would have to wait. She was promised to another man, and Poland was about to experience what is known as the Deluge. The Deluge really began with the Russian-Cossack alliance when they took most of modern-day Belarus in 1654. But as their advance was stopped, the Swedes and their new king, Karl Gustav, decided to take advantage of the chaos. They quickly took Pomerania and the region called Greater Poland. Sobieski was part of the defending forces that were quickly overwhelmed and had to surrender. But he wouldn't submit and he fled. King John Casimir did the same, as the Swedes quickly took Krakow, Poland's greatest city, and Warsaw, its new capital. Commonwealth forces were still in control of some fortresses that hadn't been besieged yet, including Gdansk and Lvov but they lost the Northeast as well when the Lithuanians capitulated to the Swedes too. Russia and the Cossacks held some territory, but a year on from being one of the largest countries in Europe, the Commonwealth was essentially under Sweden's control. The Swedes took more and more cities until late in November of 1655 when they tried to besiege a monastery using German mercenaries. A group of monks and nobles defended the Jasnagora Monastery and the Swedes lifted the siege and left after a month. At the very least, it was a much-needed morale boost for the beleaguered Poles. Some claim it turned the tide of the war. The victory was good news, but better news was that the Tatars were beginning to worry that without the Commonwealth, the Cossacks would become too powerful and come for them next. The Tatars allied themselves with the Poles and gave them some much-needed support. King John Casimir returned to Poland, and Sobieski rejoined his country's military. The Swedes were pretty terrible to the occupied lands and quickly earned the enmity of the people, so uprisings were springing up throughout northwestern Poland. 
All of this combined to help Sweden realize that complete control of the Commonwealth was probably not worth the effort. As John Casimir and his forces started retaking territory and getting guerrilla forces, as well as those Poles just waiting for the borders of re-emerging Poland to reach their houses, the Swedes were getting pushed back north. Battles against the invaders continued, and Sobieski became more involved and more important. He commanded a cavalry unit of Tatar horsemen at the Battle of Warsaw in 1656. It saw a large Polish army held back by the Swedes and their allies, the Prussians. John Casimir decided to retreat rather than press the numbers advantage when he saw the enemy holding their ground. Losses weren't great, and Sobieski helped hold off attacks while his king withdrew. Either soon before this battle, or because of his bravery during it, the sources are a little confused. Sobieski was named the standard bearer of the crown. It was an honorific position, and it showed his abilities as a cavalry officer were being recognized. At the end of the year, John Casimir went to the city of Gdansk to negotiate with a French envoy, and the Swedes surrounded the city. The Queen of Poland went with the troops led by Stefan Zarniecki to rescue the king. Sobieski was with them, and in early 1657, was sent as part of a diversionary force to besiege Swedish forces. When Carl Gustav fell for the trap and sent forces to relieve them, Zarniecki led 2,000 or so troops to break through Swedish lines, and they were able to rescue John Casimir. The Holy Roman Empire at this point feared that Swedish power and some bordering states were growing too big at the expense of Poland. So, in 1657, when the Cossacks and the Transylvanians joined in with Sweden, the Habsburgs threw their lot in with the Poles. Denmark-Norway was also worried about its Scandinavian neighbor and allied with Poland. On a personal note, Sobieski's crush Marie was forced to marry another man, although letters written between the two showed they were still very interested in each other. In 1658, Polish forces laid siege to the occupied town of Torun for about six months. Sobieski was part of this siege, and again served with distinction. Finally, the town capitulated on December 30th, and 1659 began with the Swedish forces really on their heels. They still held towns in Royal Prussia, that is, the part of the Commonwealth bordering the Baltic Sea, but by the end of 1659, they had abandoned their hopes and dreams there. In 1660, a treaty was signed that ended that part of the conflict. Sweden still occupied Livonia, modern-day Estonia, and its capital, Riga, which was ceded to them as part of the treaty. But it wasn't all over. That was just a treaty between Sweden, Poland, and Poland's allies Brandenburg-Prussia and the Holy Roman Empire. Poland had decided at this point their truce with Russia should probably end because they wanted Vilnius and the other eastern lands back from them. In 1660, Sobieski was given command over a large number of forces and took part in a couple of major battles against the Russians. His cavalry helped keep the outnumbered Russians from escaping at one battle, which led to another, the Battle of Chudnov, where something like 15,000 Russians were defeated. Tatar allies from the Crimean Khanate took most of the Russians away as slaves. By the end of 1660, the war with Russia wasn't over, but Poland was not really in existential crisis anymore for the first time in over five years. The Commonwealth was still in poor shape, though, and John Casimir attempted to reform the government. But the same was too powerful and field hetman Lubomirsky was exiled after talk of rebellion against the king. A field hetman was one of the highest-ranked military officials in the Commonwealth, and Lubomirsky was one of his mentors. But Sobieski stayed loyal to the Commonwealth despite his mentor's exile, although the fact that Zarniecki, his other mentor, was named the new field hetman may have helped. In 1661, the Commonwealth had retaken Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, and by 1664 they were trying to regain lands even further east. The campaign didn't go very well, though, although Sobieski was becoming more and more important. His mother had died in 1661, so he inherited all of her family's lands and titles, making him much more wealthy. And Marie, or... Mary Sienka, as she is known now, 
was widowed in 1665. Less than two months after that, she had remarried in a secret ceremony, this time to Sobieski. A month later, they had a real wedding ceremony, which was at the royal palace and was attended by leading dignitaries, including the Papal Nuncio, who eventually became the Pope. It also had Jewish musicians because Sobieski said, quote, no wedding would be worth without a Jewish orchestra, unquote. They even provided kosher food for them. I'm not kidding about that. The wedding lasted several days, so they had to make a separate food table for the orchestra. He was not only one of the wealthiest Polish noblemen, he was one of the more successful military commanders and now, thanks to his new wife, was plugged into the royal affairs at the capital. Sobieski was given higher ranks, and that same year Sarniecki died. Sobieski was, by 1666, named Field Hetman of the Crown, considered perhaps the second highest military rank behind the king. It went king and then Grand Hetman of the Crown. There was also a Grand Hetman of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, so you essentially had two Grand Hetmans and two Field Hetmans. Soon after that, Grand Hetman Potaki died, and Sobieski was the most important military leader in the kingdom. Which, of course, is when the Cossacks attacked again. In 1667, Russia and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth signed a peace treaty. But part of the treaty split Cossack lands. Those in eastern Ukraine were under Russian control, and the western side was given to Poland. Hetman Doroshenko, the leader of the western side, appealed to the Ottoman Empire, not so much because he wasn't pro-Polish, he had been for years, but he was anti-divided Ukraine, I mean, really, who wants Ukraine divided into a Western-looking side and a Russian vassal state? The Ottomans supported him, so the occasional Polish allies, but Ottoman-ruled Crimean Khanate, Tatars, came in on his side. It was really up to Sobieski to deal with this new conflict. But exhausted from years of war and in financial ruin, Poland was unable to gather a major force. Sobieski marched with 3,000 troops to the part of the Commonwealth that wasn't supposed to be under Cossack control. Today it's the western quarter or so of Ukraine. Sobieski pulled in another 6,000 local villagers to bring his troops to just under 10,000. The Cossacks and the Tatars each had that many, and in actuality were probably closer to triple the size of the Polish army. The Polish captains wanted to retreat, but Sobieski said he was ready to defend his country then and there. It wasn't clear what would happen if they lost the battle. Perhaps not complete conquest, but the Commonwealth would have been opened up all the way to Warsaw and Krakow for raiding and destruction. But Sobieski won the battle, and while it may be an exaggeration to say he saved the Commonwealth, he certainly saved many Polish lives. After that, he was officially named Grand Hetman, even if he was already basically that in role. According to Varvunas, quote, The grateful homage which Sobieski received from all walks of life on his return to Warsaw burst forth in enthusiastic acclamations on his re-entering the capital, so lately the scene of despair. He had earned the right to be called the savior of his people, while he had the additional pleasure to receive a letter from Mary Sienka with the news that his son was born, unquote. His wife had actually traveled to Paris to have the baby, and Louis XIV was named godfather of the newborn Jacob. The Commonwealth struggles would continue, and John Casimir, whose wife had died a year earlier, couldn't bring himself to attend to the affairs of state anymore and resigned in 1668. In 1669, the literally tens of thousands of Polish and Lithuanian nobles assembled to elect a new king. Technically, unanimous acclamation was needed. A single no vote could sink a candidacy. Sobieski was considered, but the same wanted someone who wouldn't challenge their power. So they chose a poor young Polish noble named Michael. King Michael did have a pretty impressive bloodline, although no military experience. Sobieski returned to his duties as Grand Hetman, and in 1671, the Cossacks attacked again, taking several cities. Sobieski defeated them again, which made the Ottoman-sultan Mehmed IV think maybe he ought to just do the thing himself. So he sent a letter to King Michael basically saying the Cossacks had asked for his protection, so they were under his protection because he was a nice guy 
and so deal with it, Poland. The Ottomans, probably the world's foremost military machine for the last two centuries, had set their sights on the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, or at least some territory within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. King Michael dithered, and the same tried to oust him, but Sobieski stopped it. He probably stood to gain if he was named king, but he was more concerned that a civil war would be disastrous as the Turks were marching north. In June of 1672, the 100,000 or so Ottoman soldiers and retainers began their journey, and they crossed the Danube in July. King Michael hadn't moved, so Sobieski took a few thousand men to try to reinforce the southern frontier. Sobieski didn't have enough troops to defend every city, and the Ottomans took the fortified city of Kamianik Podolski, one of the southernmost cities in the Commonwealth, on the northern side of the Dniester. The massive invading army moved north to the regional capital city of Lvov and besieged it. Sobieski could do little to stop it, and it was saved when the Poles agreed to pay the Sultan off. The Tatar Khan convinced the Ottoman Sultan to take the deal. He apparently used the specter of a nearby Sobieski with a large army to convince the Turks to lift the siege. Although it's worth noting that if the Turks took over this newly devastated region, the Tatars would have nowhere to raid. The Turks backed off to discuss a peace treaty, while the Tatars moved further into Polish territory. But it didn't work out well for the Crimean raiders. Sobieski spent the autumn of 1672 engaged with them, and had several large victories, including one at Komarno, which obliterated a Tatar force numbering 10,000. Sobieski was still greatly outnumbered, and hadn't faced the Ottomans directly, and more help was not on the way. But King Michael signed a treaty that ceded the region around Kamianik Podolsky to Constantinople, and pretty much everything east of that to the Cossacks. He also agreed to pay an annual tribute to the Ottomans, which essentially made the Commonwealth a vassal kingdom. It was an embarrassment that the same refused to ratify, although perhaps the king knew this all along and was just trying to buy some time. It certainly gave time for Sobieski to convince the same to raise an army, because they knew the Ottomans would be returning. By the beginning of 1673, he had convinced the nobility that raising a force was necessary, and may actually have had a chance of success. Sobieski was able to get the sometimes reluctant Lithuanians aboard. You'd think that since they were part of the Polish kingdom, it wouldn't be so difficult, but regardless, the other Grand Hetman, the Lithuanian Michael Pak, eventually did lead his forces down to help out. As the summer of 1673 came to a close, the Polish-Lithuanian forces advanced towards the Ottoman camp at Kotin, just south of the Dniester River. Kotin was just across the border, in what was Moldavia at the time, and it was a city where Sobieski's father distinguished himself 50 years earlier in a battle against the Ottomans. Moldavia, along with Wallachia, were Christian principalities that were vassal states of the Ottomans. They finally reached the city in November, and it was a cold day when the Poles arrived at the fortified Ottoman camp and lined up to attack. Initial attacks on the fort were repulsed, and Sobieski knew it wouldn't be an easy thing to take it. Some good news came when the Moldavian troops defected to his size. It was probably no more than a few thousand, and likely didn't change the balance of forces much, but it certainly had some effect on morale. At sunset, Sobieski noticed the Turks seemed to have a thinner rank of guards and infantry. It seems the freezing cold was felt more severely by the southerners than by the Poles and Sobieski saw his chance and ordered the attack. He was right, and he was doubly right to send the Lithuanian field hetman's forces around to prevent a retreat by the Ottomans. After a fierce battle, the Turks took to flight, but were cut off from retreat by the Lithuanians. At least 20,000 Turks were killed, of a force of around 30,000. The Ottomans remained a threat, but the immediate one was squashed, which was good, because a day or so after the battle, King Michael I of Poland died. Attention was turned to electing a new king, and Sobieski made his way back to Poland. He went to his home in Lwów, but Marysienka convinced him that he needed to go to Warsaw. But he delayed because as the Grand Hetman of the Crown, he has to continue making war plans, and probably so that people would notice he wasn't there. 
There were again a few European nobles up for the job, and people looked to Sobieski. But the same was nervous that he'd become so strong he'd limit their powers. In the end, a Polish noble and military leader named Stanislav Jablonowski gave a stirring speech and convinced the Poles of what they already knew. They needed the man who had saved the country a few times already to continue doing it. In May of 1647, Sobieski was elected King of Poland at the age of 45. But he waited on his coronation. I assume when asked what he was waiting for, he had some sort of action hero response that was along the lines of, I'll get to it, but first, I have some business to attend to. The Ottomans re-entered Polish territory to try to avenge themselves of the defeat and took several towns and cities while Sobieski camped at Lvov. He attacked a large army of mostly Tatars outside of the city, and he personally led his hussars to send the enemy fleeing. After that, a rather famous engagement occurred when the Ottomans, with a force of about 30,000, laid siege to a fortress in the town of Trembola. The castle was defended by less than a hundred soldiers and a few local peasants, and their commander, John Samuel Cherzanowski, supposedly offered up an incredible answer when asked to surrender. Quote, You are mistaken if you expect to find gold within these walls. We have nothing here but steel and soldiers. Our number indeed is small, but our courage is great. Do not flatter yourself that we will surrender, for you shall never take us till we have breathed our last. I am preparing to give you another answer by the mouth of my cannon, unquote. True or not, they certainly put up a fight. The siege lasted a few weeks, but there was no reason to think any relief was on the way. The nobles holed up in the castle thought surrender was the best option, and after four assaults, even Cherzanowski was pretty sure they wouldn't be able to make it through a fifth. But then Cherzanowski's wife, Anna Dorada, who was apparently even more of a badass than her husband, rallied the troops, threatening to kill herself and her husband for his cowardice if he gave up the fight. Fortunately for them, Sobieski began to make his way over with a relief force, and the siege was lifted by the Turks for fear of a battle with Sobieski. The Cherzanowskis became celebrities and were given noble titles. With that, the Ottomans withdrew for the winter, and Sobieski decided he could finally have his coronation, which he did in January 1676. But the war continued, and the Ottomans appointed a new commander and sent another force that year to try to have a more decisive battle. As the Ottomans gathered their forces, Sobieski brought a large army of 20 to 30,000 soldiers south into western Ukraine. He camped in the town of Stanislavov, which is only notable because it's where my grandfather was born. After some small skirmishes, the two forces approached each other near the town of Zoralno. Sobieski entrenched his forces and forced a stalemate. The Ottoman patience wore thin, and they decided it was time to enter negotiations. Sobieski was able to negotiate a treaty that was more favorable to the Commonwealth than the previous one was. There was no tribute payment, and they retained more territory. And with that, the war with the Turks was officially over, for the moment. Relative peace lasted until 1682 when a massive Turkish force began to gather. Nobody was sure exactly what it was doing. Hungary, divided between the Holy Roman and Ottoman empires, seemed like it might be a goal. But Poland, or perhaps the Habsburg land, were certainly viable targets as well. Sobieski and the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I, oftentimes rivals if not enemies, but in that great powers of Europe alternatively allying and fighting sense, negotiated plans to back each other up in case of invasion. If it did come to war, Sobieski was named Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces. Leopold was no warrior, so he didn't put up a fight on that point. In the spring of 1683, the Ottomans began their march north with over 150,000 troops. This was a massive army for the day, and even combined, the Poles and the Austrians weren't going to bring that many soldiers. Kara Mustafa, the commander, was convinced he could take Vienna, perhaps the most important city in Central and Eastern Europe. But still unclear what the Ottoman target was, the Austrians set to defend the Hungarian city of Gyor. Gyor was in northwestern Hungary, about halfway in between Vienna and Buda, as in Budapest, and it was an important city. 
But it wasn't the Turks' main target. They left a contingent of about 20,000 to besiege it, and the rest went right past it. Confusion still reigned among Europeans until early July, when it became clear the Ottomans were heading towards Vienna, the capital of Austria, and the residence of the Holy Roman Emperor. Leopold decided to abandon the city. This must have been crushing to the citizens of Vienna, and many fled right along with him. Austrian nobleman Ernst Rudiger von Starenberg was left to command the city with about ten to 15,000 soldiers. The Ottomans approached on July 14th and asked for a surrender, but von Starenberg refused. This was no doubt influenced by the massacre of the population of a nearby city that had surrendered. He didn't trust the Turks to spare them. It didn't take long for the Turks to surround the city entirely, and they started the slow and deliberate process of destroying the defenses. Vienna had over 300 cannons, the Turks didn't have nearly that many. But it was only a matter of time until their miners were able to dig underneath, blow up the walls, and build some ramps right in. Sobieski was informed of the siege and began to gather his forces for the march into the empire. He marched to Krakow and waited for his commanders to arrive. When his old friend and now Grand Hetman Jablonowski arrived, they prepared to leave, and finally departed on August 11th, almost a month after the siege began. On August 30th, he crossed into Austrian territory, and linked up with the forces of Charles of Lorraine, the commander of the Holy Roman Empire's troops. Sobieski laid out the order of battle for all of the disparate troops, not only Charles's Austrian forces, but forces commanded by Saxons, Franconians, and Bavarians. The city managed to hold out longer than expected, and in early September, the relief army arrived in time to actually do something. The Allies enacted Sobieski's plan. He took his forces around and had to cross the Danube. Fear of a trap and his reputation kept the enemy from attacking while he was most vulnerable. The Turks didn't back off the siege when the United Army showed up. Instead, they poured it on even more, hoping to break through before the relief force could be properly set up. Vienna, one of the most important and grand cities in the world, was desperate. Its citizens were starving, eating horses, mice, and dogs, and the Turks were almost in. On September 10th, a cry went up in the city. A guard had spotted the relief army, and they knew at the very least they weren't alone. By September 11th, the Allied forces were present in numbers enough to fight the Ottomans. Sobieski didn't hesitate. He told his commanders Vienna had no time and the next day the battle began. Early the next morning, the fighting started. The Duke of Lorraine commanded the left flank and engaged first. They fought fiercely, they advanced slowly, and were forced back with counterattacks, but finally took a small town on the outskirts of the city. In the early afternoon, Sobieski brought his forces around on the right flank. They had a much farther march, so it took them longer to get there. Murad Giray, the Khan of Crimea, tried to convince Kara Mustafa to bring more forces to face the impending Polish threat, but to no avail. So, he took his 20,000 Tatar forces and left, thinking the Ottomans had a foolish plan to defeat the winged Hazars, and wasn't interested in sticking around to see how it played out. Kara Mustafa redistributed forces to compensate, but he didn't remove his janissaries that were trying to attack the city, convinced they were about to enter any minute. He took forces from his right wing, facing the Austrians, and put about two-thirds of his available troops to face Sobieski and the Poles. The Polish infantry attacked, and the armies were engaged for several hours. Sobieski waited on sending in the Hussars because he was worried about the terrain. Charles of Lorraine saw the right flank was weakened, sent off to help with Sobieski, so he pressed his troops forward. As they began to approach the Turkish camp, and caused further confusion, Sobieski realized now was the time for the hammer blow. He ordered his cavalry to attack, and he and his winged hussars drove into the Ottoman lines. 3,000 of his hussars and another 15,000 or so other Commonwealth and Empire cavalry joined the attack. It has been called the largest cavalry charge in history. It sent the Ottoman army back and caused a retreat that turned into a total rout. It was the deciding move, Viennese sallied out from the city to help the attack, and the battle was soon over. That evening, Sobieski wrote a letter to his beloved Mary Sienka, as he so often did. But he also wrote a letter to the Pope in Rome, with a play on words of another Roman. I came, I saw, God conquered. The Allies didn't sit still. 
Sobieski chased the Ottomans to the town of Parkany. He thought he had come upon a small contingent, but his few thousand cavalry came upon a massive force and were quickly surrounded. He lost about a thousand men and retreated. The rest of the army, Charles of Lorraine's 17,000 soldiers, along with an additional 10,000 Polish troops, caught up the next day. After their initial victory, the Turks were confident and ready to launch another attack. This time the Allies were successful. The Turks slammed into the Imperial Army and were held back, and Sobieski's cavalry was able to hit them from the flank, utterly destroying them. Estimates are that 10,000 Turks were killed, another 3,000 captured, out of a force that was probably less than 20,000. Before the end of 1683, Kara Mustafa was executed at the behest of Sultan Mehmed IV. The European powers sought to capitalize on their victory and form the Holy League of 1684. Sobieski envisioned a coordinated but separate foray into Ottoman territory. The Venetians would of course deal with attacks on the Mediterranean as well as the Black Sea. The Holy Roman Empire would go after Hungary, and he would lead Poland into Moldavia and Wallachia. The coordination wasn't anything like it was for Vienna. Everyone in a way did their own thing, and that included Poland, despite Austrian advances to their southwest and Russian in the southeast. Before attacking, the Poles had to make sure the Russians wouldn't just come on in and take over, so they negotiated another treaty with Moscow. Sobieski then headed towards Romania. He was able to take the Moldavian capital at Yassi on August 16, 1686, and was welcomed by some of the leaders, although others left before he arrived. He took with him on the order of 45,000 soldiers, first to capture Romania, where he assumed the local forces would join with him, and then to try to capture the region of Podolsky in today's southwestern Ukraine, which included that fortress at Kamienek Podolsky. The Turks and the Tatars avoided a pitched battle with Sobieski's forces, and he chased them east. But without the Romanian nobility, any other allied forces, and the ability to press and engage, his troops began to bog down. The summer heat and lack of food made Sobieski decide to turn around after about two weeks. There were minor engagements along the way, but he returned to Yassi without a real battle. A fire then erupted in the capital, and anti-Polish-Lithuanian feelings began brewing. He decided to leave the city without a garrison, and went back in the direction of Poland. Attacks from the Turks intensified, but other than a battle where Polish cavalry defeated 2,000 Tatars, no big battles ever occurred. Sobieski got back to Poland, but had lost about a quarter of his men and didn't really have any gains to show for it. The Commonwealth backed away from the war against the Ottomans for a bit, only offering minor engagements until Sobieski tried to take Moldavia again in 1691. He could never really get Austrian cooperation on the conquest because they saw themselves as masters of the Danube, down to the Black Sea, and would have preferred Poland to stay north of the Dniester. But Sobieski convinced Leopold that they could share the region, Moldavia to Poland and Wallachia to Austria. The Poles drew up another large force and Sobieski, now 60 years old, once again led his army personally. This time they were slightly more successful, but only slightly. They took a few more towns, but still weren't able to have any major engagements with the Tatars or the Ottomans, who had no desire to do so. The snow came very early that year, and since he wasn't prepared for a long, drawn-out occupation anyway, Sobieski and the army returned to the Commonwealth by the end of 1691. It would be his last campaign. He was ailing, and he soon gave up command of the army. He finally died in 1696, and with his death went the glory of the Commonwealth. It continued on. In 1699, the Ottomans signed the Treaty of Karlowitz, which finally gave back Podolsky, and Kamienek Podolsky. But Sobieski's sons were shut out of the succession, and the country lasted only about a hundred years more. Weakened by the deluge and the power of the same and the many enemies around it, only Sobieski's force of will made it a great power. After he was gone, nobody could keep the country stabilized. The resistance of the same to any reform, civil war, as well as Russia's growing power and influence helped to weaken the Commonwealth even further, until it was first a Russian protectorate and eventually partitioned and swallowed up by the Russians, Prussians, and Austrians. The Ottomans, thanks in no small part to John Sobieski, 
also began to fade from the world stage at that time. After their defeat of Vienna, they never really threatened Central Europe again. The Treaty of Karlowitz marked their last time above the Danube. For the first time in three centuries, they were truly on the retreat in Europe, although they were still a formidable Russian adversary for another hundred years. Sobieski will always be remembered as the general who saved Europe from the Ottoman threat, but he did much more than that. He had a career of successful campaigns. He brought Poland back from the brink of destruction multiple times, and he prolonged the life of an odd country, one that was almost a prelude to the democracies of the next century for at least a little while. Varvunas wrote that even when he still lived, Sobieski was sometimes compared to the Roman Emperor Vespasian. Quote, like him, he was raised to the throne by his military services, the charms of his wit, the readiness with which he spoke several languages, his acquaintance with polite literature, the wisdom of his conversation, the gentleness of his manners, his sincerity and friendship and paternal affections. All these qualities made him a great ruler, unquote. He keeps going, so I'll keep going. Quote, he had the divine spark of leadership, the gift of communicating energy and inspiring confidence in tired, frightened, and dispirited men. His soldiers felt they were following a winner. The Commonwealth acquired an importance under his rule that it never possessed afterwards. Unquote. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you enjoyed the season. That's it for now. I had always planned on this being a 10-episode season, and so I'm going to stop and take a break, but I'll be back. So please stay subscribed on iTunes. It's those subscription numbers that make me realize I want to keep doing this because people are listening. So I truly appreciate it. Leave a comment on iTunes. Uh, let other people know that you're enjoying this, if you are. Um, and as I said, please stay subscribed because I'll be back in a few months and hopefully a new episode will pop up on your device and you'll be excited to see it again. I have a little bit of a different plan for the first episode next season. I haven't really fleshed it out, but I think it's going to be closer to something like the history of Rome or hardcore history, where it's really the story of more than one biography and, and the events that surround it. But but it will still be in this vein of the almost forgotten. It will still be focused on a few people this time instead of just one. And it will still be about those that you may have heard of, but don't really know too much about them. And that'll be the first two or three episodes. And then from there, I'll probably do a person an episode again. So thanks again for listening. Please stay subscribed. Please leave a comment on iTunes. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. <laughs>